Hey, I'm Mike Cruz, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today, I'm joined by Kyle Poyer from OpenView Ventures. Uh, Kyle's a VP of growth there, and he's been at OpenView for the past five years. Uh, and probably the foremost expert when it comes to product-led growth, which is really the topic of today's uh, episode, is diving into product-led growth, why it's important, uh, how to think about it as a framework for your business. Uh, and just a little context, you know, we've gotten to know OpenView uh, for the past four years or so, and they've been a great partner of ours. We Every year, we work with them on the Expansion SaaS Benchmark Survey. Uh, we're going to talk about that today as well. Uh, but before we get started, Kyle, uh, thanks for, for joining and, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, maybe just to start, before we even dive into product-led growth, I would just love to hear a little bit about yourself in, in OpenView. So maybe to start, you've been in OpenView for five years, uh, and... And before that, my, my understanding is you were you spent a chunk of time in, in consulting. So how did you get into the world of venture and get your job in, in initial foot in the door with OpenView? Yeah, I uh, I fell into it, to be honest. Uh, there are very few roles for operators uh, in a VC environment. Yeah. And especially in Boston, where I'm based, I'd say OpenView has a fairly unique value-add model in venture. And it's a founding principle of the firm. And I I think it's a a really interesting model where we only invest in one type of company, which are software companies growing through the expansion stage, normally Series A, Series B. And then we're able to build uh, an in-house team that can work directly with those companies around operational strategies, hiring, growth to scale kind of through those years um, and, and hopefully see rapid rapid growth during that period. And so I think those models really go hand in hand. Like if we weren't focused on one type of company, we couldn't build a team of experts that work with them. Um, and by having a team of experts, we could actually get better about making investment decisions um, and you know picking the right companies to invest in. And it's, so, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun, fun role and I'm very lucky um, that, that the firm was founded with this, this in mind. It, it's pretty incredible. And I think of uh, venture uh, investors and funds who do something a little bit different or really providing value. Uh, to me, it's like first round capital. I think every uh, post they do, I read. Uh, OpenView uh, as well, like every single post and, and piece of content you guys provide in NFX. So it's like, it's pretty interesting, right? You guys have a, a team that works alongside your portfolio companies. I think I saw on your LinkedIn, it said um, your your team has has added over $100 million in enterprise value for the portfolio company portfolio companies over the last few years. What does, that, what does that mean, enterprise value? Does that mean like, hey, we've gone in, we've helped a company use this framework or change pricing or whatever, and we think we affected valuation that much? Or what is that $100 million kind of metric? What does that mean to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it's certainly tricky to define, but we try to be as data-driven and metric-oriented as possible. And so the, one of the most common ways that our portfolio companies will work with us is they'll come and say, hey, uh, we have a, a challenge around pricing. You know, we haven't revisited it in a couple of years. Uh, it's not working for X, Y, Z reasons. And we'll scope out. All right, let's 
let's work together on a six week sprint. And our goals will be to fix pricing and you know achieve XYZ metrics, whether that's higher conversion rate, higher revenue per customer, uh, whatever that that core metric that we're trying to fix is. And we'll uh, work very collaborative collaboratively with the company. And it might include something like, let's analyze all of the deals that we've sold and what we sold them for and what was the win rate based on different price points and discounts and all that. We'll go out and interview or survey their customers. We'll do some financial modeling on different pricing scenarios, pricing and packaging model that the company's ready to go out and launch. If uh, revenue per customer increases by 30% immediately after they launch the pricing and the conversion rate uh, to paying customers and number, uh, number of leads hasn't changed, that's just 30% faster growth during that yeah. you know, upcoming period. And so for enterprise value, we'll say, okay, how many new customers uh, you know, signed up during this period when we, after we launched the pricing? What was the incremental revenue that we were able to generate? And then based on uh, the recent valuation, what multiple of revenue are they valued at? And yeah. so we can make some educated guesses around what was the impact of some of that work. Yeah, okay, it makes total sense. How big is the team? That you guys like go in like how how many people uh, are part of the the this kind of SWAT team you put into companies that are that are part of OpenView? We've got about fifteen across what we call our expansion team, which if you consider our portfolio is about thirty companies, <laughs> so yeah. it's a, a very unique ratio. But that team is divided across different groups based on what we know are the most important uh, growth levers that a company has during that period. So we have, you know, four uh, folks that just do hiring for the portfolio because we know that one of those critical things you're trying to do from Series A to Series B and from Series B to Series C is just bring on new hires really at all levels of the company and especially start to bring on those first key leadership hires. Um, and you might not have the employer brand um, or the kind of in-house talent team that can hire at that scale that you need. Your ability to to achieve your revenue targets depends on how quickly you can get these great people in seat while maintaining the culture, onboarding them, and so on. And then my team, uh, the growth side, got about five folks, a mix of ex-consultants and operators who uh, go work on anything revenue growth related, whether that's acquisition, more marketing top of funnel work, uh, go-to-market strategy, Conversion through the funnel, like in the product or through teams, monetization, customer success and expansion, you name it. And then we even have experts around corporate development and capital markets who have great relationships with a bunch of the strategic players who can uh, be great partners or potential long-term requires for our portfolio. Uh, we have uh, an, uh, an amazing, uh, talented person named Casey who actually runs our executive network as well, which is our network of advisors uh, and executives in software who become just uh, really incredible independent board members for our companies uh, or can become customers to, to actually purchase their software. And so we're, as you can see, we, we're trying to be uh, the one-stop shop these companies need it's, to it's, grow. Yeah, what a, what a resource. Who's flipping the bill for that? Is that coming out of management fees and you guys are, that's how you're paying for the headcount or are you guys funding this a different way? It's... It is a mix of funding models. I'd say the vast yeah. majority of the funding comes from our management fees. So it's an investment that OpenView and our investors, frankly, 
make with the idea that this helps grow the overall value of the portfolio and that this helps us attract um, some of the best companies to invest in. Uh, there are some modest fees that uh, the portfolio companies pay. It's totally on an opt-in basis. So if cool. they want certain like uh, services, they have the option of, of choosing to, uh, to pay for them. Very cool. Yeah, I would love to dive into that maybe later for time permitting and and you know talk about maybe how companies can get on your radar. But today the the topic is is product led growth and and it seems to be you know I mean you look at Slack who has just taken off the 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 public market right for for a great multiple and and definitely when you think of product led growth I think a lot of people think of like Slack but that's the topic today. Who who coined the term product led growth? Was that OpenView? I feel like you guys own it. Uh, were you the ones that, that were the originators? Yeah. So OpenView actually uh, defined product led growth, came up with the term in uh, 2016. And I'd say we didn't create the concept. There were a lot of great companies with a product led model at that point. But what we found is that there wasn't a common language or set of best practices or even community. Mm -hmm. around how to do what they were doing. And all of these companies kind of acted like they were making it up from scratch. And we had we, we said, this is more than just a, a set of one-off companies. This is a way that is going to be uh, you know, driving a better customer experience. And then from a kind of from a uh, vendor perspective, it's a way to grow faster at scale because you're not as reliant on people. Uh, you, you're kind of bringing a lot of what would be manual processes or expensive processes, bring that into the product in a scalable way. And uh, so it's very efficient and effective uh, at, at growing revenue. And I think from a, from a buyer perspective, we're just seeing the rise of the end user in uh, purchase decisions for software. So mm -hmm. end users are, are oftentimes at the front lines, experiencing an everyday pain point, and they want to just go up go sign up for a product, start uh, kicking the tires with it. And all of a sudden, that single user might turn into a team or multiple teams uh, and you know multiple credit cards paying for it. Uh, and then it's so valuable to that organization that that translates into a, a larger enterprise-wide subscription later on. And so it's a way that uh, actually, in, in some cases, can disrupt many of the legacy software players that have gotten really big, but have never solved for this end user pain. In fact, you look at companies like a Salesforce, some cases their products create more end user pain because they're so focused on adding value for that executive, that CRO uh, level, level user. Yeah, it was funny when we were starting Visible back in 2014, uh, this is kind of before you know product-led growth was like a term, and we got a Salesforce account, right? Everyone's like, all right, you use Salesforce to track sales, right? I'm like, okay, we get a Salesforce account and it buckets things. It's like leads, opportunities, accounts. And I'm like, what? This has like, this doesn't even feel like our app or how we sell. Uh, and so when you guys started coming out and, and being real champions for product-led growth, it was like a, a breath of fresh air to, I think, to a lot of companies. Uh, and so I guess maybe just to take a quick step back, how, how do you define product-led growth in like a sentence or two, right? For someone listening that's maybe trying to wrap their head around this, what is product-led growth? The way we think about it is that it's an end-user-focused growth model. So again, recognizing that end-users are the most important constituent in adopting software. 
and that product becomes front and center in how you acquire, convert, and expand those end users. Yep, I love that exam- uh, that answer. So my next question then is, I think there's a lot, I think when people think of product-led growth, and me certainly, you tend to think freemium or free trial um, is part of that. Is that a hard rule in your mind? Or could you have an enterprise SaaS company where you know, you're deploying field sales reps and all that stuff, but still have a product-led growth mentality? Yeah, it's, uh, to me, product-led growth is more of a dimmer switch than an on or off switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and, and I think to me, like the best in class, right, would be having a business focus that connects across really every, every way you operate that has this end user mindset. And so everything from the problems you decide to solve, like are you solving just executive level pain or also end user pain, the way you allow people to get onboarded and start to see value quickly in the app, uh, your pricing model to kind of reduce friction in getting people to, to try before they buy, um, the way you layer in sales and customer success to help customers. I think like all of it ideally connects. I think if I am looking at the market of companies that might be PLG or considering PLG tactics, if you haven't started with this freemium or free trial motion, there are things you can do to move in the direction of PLG uh, without going all the way. Uh, you know, especially not you know not too soon, where you can get quick wins, early wins. And I think one of those, for instance, is just allowing your customers to try out new features or new products that you want to launch that would be paid additions. So free trials into the install base. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a, if you think about HubSpot, uh, they have had a huge transformation in their business from being more sales and marketing driven to product driven. And most of their customers now sign up and start using the product before they talk to somebody in sales. But that, uh, that was never the case in the past. Before they had that model, they had the HubSpot website grader, where it was a free tool. You could go in, put your domain in, and you get feedback on how your website was performing. Oh, and by the way, like if you're failing in any areas, HubSpot's a great tool to help you improve your website uh, performance and get better uh, and more leads. And I believe they've now had 4 million folks use that website grader. And so to me, that's an, that's an idea of it, you're, you're building a product as a marketing channel. And so instead of thinking of marketing as, all right, what's the next event I can sponsor or trade show? Can you take some of that budget and create a pipeline of folks who could become interested in your paid editions? Thinking through that, who are some of the, the like best-in-class companies you guys think of when you're like, if we, you know, could could replicate uh, this portfolio company into, you know, one one, but like, who are companies that come to mind who are best in class with with product led growth? And we actually track us. Uh, so we track every company that uh, IPOs, and we classify them as you know PLG or or not, and have a, a PLG index. And so uh, we've been studying that that group of companies plus uh, plus private market companies for a while. I'd say that. The uh, infrastructure software companies have seen probably the most success as a category. Yeah. So thinking about the AWS, Atlassian, Datadog, Twilio, those models are just um, you know unbelievably successful. I think Datadog in particular is an OpenView portfolio company, and they are one of the reasons why we developed so much conviction around BLG. When we saw that a developer could go in, start monitoring, you know, a piece of their infrastructure, 
uh, you know, put the $15 fee on their credit card. And then all of a sudden, customers could be spending thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month. And it all happened organically through kind of word of mouth and folks seeing value in the product. Uh, and, and in some cases, all before procurement ever got involved, I think that that was an eye-opening moment for us that, hey, you can actually sell enterprise deals or an enterprise-grade solution, but through this bottom-up um, end-user model. And I think that's just how developers are very comfortable trying out products. They don't want to talk to salespeople. They have budget for things. And so the developer audience is just an incredible audience to tap into. Uh, but just other companies that, that come to mind, uh, obviously, I have to call out Atlassian as they're one of the pioneers of this model. And I think for Atlassian in some of the early days, a company based in Australia, they didn't necessarily have the resources or the access to build you know, this high-flying US-based sales team. And the time zone is so challenging that uh, building any kind of sales team to reach the US from Australia would be a difficult proposition. And they went in the direction of let's, let's go with self-service, low prices, easy to use products. Um, and I think that was something that they were one of the uh, first companies to really see dramatic growth with that model. And the results speak for themselves. I think one other example I'd call out is Calendly. They're another yeah. uh, portfolio company of ours. And, and I think with their model, the viral loop is particularly interesting. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a fun example because the founder, uh, Tope, he never had planned to build a freemium company. Uh, I believe he was bootstrapping the company for a while in the early days. And uh, he ran out of money to pay developers to build the paywall. And so the free forever was sort of a happy accident. But I think the discovery for him was scheduling is an inherently viral thing. And folks would use it to schedule meetings with other people. Those other people would say, Oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to sign up for an account. And then he was also able to learn from his power users to figure out what are the use cases where this becomes a much more important product. And then his product investments at the paid roadmap became tied to what those customers needed. And so his journey ended up being uh, just incredibly successful because they've been able to find a growth model where they don't need to spend money on marketing or sales to acquire users. It's all uh, most entirely through this viral loop. And then they have natural routes that they can expand customers over time. Yeah, that is just an incredible story. I, I love it for so many reasons. Um, the founder's story, uh, the bootstrap piece. Uh, I mean, the business is, I can't, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but I know it's doing tens. It's, it's doing a, consider, a considerable amount of recurring revenue for probably something a lot of investors would say like, oh, this seems like a nice to have in a feature, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's clearly not. Yeah, uh, there's a, an interview Tope recently did, I believe, where he shared that they're north of 60 million yep, that's in it. ARR, yep. and they haven't actually required much of any venture funding to get there because of uh, their profitability. And so yeah. the uh, the growth, the scale, the profitability are are very rare in uh, in today's SaaS world. Yeah, I I kind of want to talk on channel for a second. So Calendly is, I think, a great example of of virality as a channel. Uh, are there any common themes you see as like places where uh, these product led growth companies are acquiring customers? Is it is it 
more viral and word of mouth? Is it paid, organic? I mean, even Datadog, right? That sounds like uh, that's self-serve developers kind of putting it in and then you don't rip that out, right? And as your business grows, you're just naturally expanding that account uh, as that, that company grows. So like, what are some successful channels that are maybe common themes uh, that you guys see? Yeah, I mean, the mentality that folks need to take with a product-led model is that you're looking at much more B2C marketing tactics versus B2B because mm-hmm. the uh, you're not able to offset you know significant customer acquisition costs towards this like subset of buyers. Uh, you're not able to pay that off immediately, right? Because you're normally starting with end users, pay a small amount, and grow over time. So you need to find ways to scalably reach this very large audience of potential users a subset of which are going to eventually grow and become large vendors. And it's almost like a portfolio approach to growth. And so you're looking at things like uh, SEO, certainly uh, referrals, word of mouth, uh, and then being present on other app stores or sort of through third-party audiences in order to scale. And you don't want to be overly reliant on paid advertising, events, SDRs, lists, email, like all of that kind of classic B2B set of tactics. I think the most successful companies uh, that I see have found a way to get extremely good about SEO. And normally, it's programmatic and product-driven SEO. I think Sneak, Datadog, Zapier, um, Mm -hmm. a number of folks are are great at this. But the way you can think about this, uh, I think Zapier is maybe a a good example to, to think of. If you want to find an application that helps you connect other apps. Uh, that's something that you, you, know, you can maybe search for that, but that's maybe not the most common search term that people have. The search term that they have is, how do I connect my Typeform with HubSpot? How yep. do I connect Typeform with Google Sheets? And there are thousands more of those kind of potential terms, and those are an underexploited blue ocean from an SEO perspective. And also, as a, as a nice side note, when people are searching for things like that, they're really well qualified for the Zapier product. And so you know, if I were a Zapier, you're going to want to have content built out landing pages for all of those potential combinations of apps that people can build together. And you're going to be able to look at your product data and see where is there the most success with your product? Where do you have the most users connecting certain apps? And that can help inform your content strategy of what users you want to go out and acquire uh, and what content you want to rank highly on. And so there's this natural synergy between what you're doing from a product perspective, what, what you can do from an SEO and marketing perspective. That makes, that makes total sense. And when I think of product-led growth and I think of SEO, I think of... It takes time, right? I feel like it, it is certainly something that uh, early on, the results are smaller. Maybe you're not growing as fast as you want, but it's something, it's like compounding interest. It's, you know, uh, maybe 15 years from now or, you know, five years from now, uh, you, you'll see a compounding return. And so I guess like, to frame that, maybe my thought or question and tie this together is, you know, why do I care about product-led growth, right? Like I could just go hire, you know, 20 BDRs and five AEs and, and go pound the pavement for sales today and get to a million dollars in ARR. Why should I care about product-led growth? Because uh, maybe it takes a little bit of time and it is more of an investment and, and a test of your will. So why should I care? 
Absolutely. Well, and, and data from our SAS benchmark survey does indicate companies on average grow a bit slower than other companies in the early days. And then the magic starts to happen around, um, call it the 5 million ARR mark, where PLG companies keep growing and they grow a lot more efficiently, uh, while other companies start to be uh, blocked by their ability to acquire new leads, feed those leads to sales, hire sales fast enough, ramp up that sales team, uh, deal with you know personnel churn, all, all of uh, all of the, what comes with scaling an, an enterprise SaaS business. It's a, a PLG motion that forces a SaaS company to develop a really strong foundation early on, and that foundation allows them to have kind of uh, their own. They, they can control their own destiny in terms of how they grow from there. And so part of that foundation is we're going to focus on a really easy to use product that people can get value out of quickly. And oh, if you decide to go more of the sales driven route, there are benefits in that you're going to be able to have a great user experience that has a better MVS, better retention, products that your end users love. Uh, but there's also benefits if you continue down the PLG path. or finding a way to solve for an end user pain and be able to uh, allow more than just the executive buyer to see value in, in the app so that you have champions at different levels of an organization. And so that's something that, you know, again, it's not necessarily something that's going to pay for itself immediately. But in the long run, you might be very glad you did it from a, uh, you know, uh, from a, number, for a number of reasons. And then I think that on the, on the marketing side even, you're investing early on in building out uh, channels that can convert or that can drive new signups at a very low cost of acquisition and that are scalable and will compound in their growth of signups over time rather than things like SDRs, cold calling, you know, an executive buyer who might happen to be interested in, a, in buying the software that you're selling at that specific moment. Uh, and so if you think about it, with any kind of like SDR activity or going to a trade show, that creates this jolt of energy, but that fizzles out. And so wouldn't it be better from the long run to build these foundations of growth that you're going to be uh, really glad that you you did those early on? Yeah, I mean, it's thinking it's thinking long term, right? Uh, in, instead of a short term, you know, a short term fix for maybe an immediate gain, it's, it's a long term thinking. And ultimately, right, that is higher enterprise value for you as a company. Uh, I think uh, you guys have this interesting chart of your, and we'll make sure to link it in this, but the product-led growth chart, right, where it's like the multiples in the public market, uh, product-led growth companies are trading at, at higher value uh, because they are more efficient. Is that, is it, did I get that right? Yeah, and it's substantially higher value that they're trading at. And, and I think the other thing just to note is that about, a quarter of the companies in our benchmark survey identify a quarter of private companies identify as PLG companies, but about half of the companies that have gone public in the last four or so years have been PLG companies. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about companies with a PLG model do appear to be more likely to be on the IPO trajectory, uh, and then they're valued more highly once they do IPO. Uh, and uh, I think that that's even accelerated during COVID. And so we've always seen the PLG index outperform the broader SaaS index. But that, has, uh, that gap has increased over time. I think part of, part of that is with COVID, uh, you know, budgets, for instance, might have gotten cut. And uh, 
what's what's challenging for a lot of companies is to make commitments to software uh, and to you know maybe they'll lock in a two year or three year contract for something that they don't know if they're actually going to see value with as an organization. And what might feel like a less risky bet is to start small, to like find something where your end users are already seeing value in it, maybe for free, maybe just on a credit card, and then slowly increase your spend and add more folks to your account over time. Uh, and so I think that you know customers are opting for PLG products because of that flexibility and that guarantee of value where they can try before they buy. And then uh, you know you can also think about it as with this work from home environment, individuals have had to really build their own tool set. Uh, you have to, even in some cases, for, I mean, for me, had to create a work from home setup <laughs> that's yeah. inclusive of like technology and non-technology. Uh, but you know, people are going out looking for products that allow them to do their job. And I think that that mentality had always been there pre-COVID, but COVID has accelerated that that trend. Do you think that, you know, some time frame, five, 10 years from now, uh, that that's how all software is going to be bought. Just like, hey, I'm going to want to try this before I buy it. You know, I think if you look maybe 10 years ago, you know, you would hear stories of people not even seeing a demo of the product and buying it. Uh, do you think even at like the biggest of enterprises, do you think there's always going to be some sort of like, I need to try this or, or use the product before I commit to it? I think it's going to be a balance. I, I don't I don't see the world going 100% PLG. Uh but I, I think PLG is coming to a lot of industries where folks didn't think it would would come. So it's going to be an, an increasing share, just not ever 100%. And you know, when I think about that, there are some instances where the value proposition is really going to be an executive level value proposition, and you, where you need all people within an enterprise to be using the product to see value. And in those cases, you know, it's hard to think of a PLG motion disrupting that model. Maybe it's complementary to the existing model. Uh, and like in a security environment, in a lot of cases, CISOs are you know, very hesitant about sharing their data. Um, and they want to go through a thorough review and evaluation of products before they adopt anything new. And so it's hard for those companies to, uh, to go with something where you know, it's untrusted and uh, it's an end-user-focused product offering. But I think even there, um, you know, it, it has been fascinating to follow companies over the last few years because uh, companies have been bringing PLG models into spaces where I never had previously expected that they would be in. And I think Sneak is an example in the security space that has said hey, the you know the developer is the new security audience, uh, mm-hmm. and you know you might have a couple of security professionals in a company, and they're kind of putting controls on developers of how developers can build software. Developers just want to build as quickly as they can and in a secure way. And so they're saying, hey, we can build products that allow developers to adopt secure practices into their uh, development. And in that way, appeal to this very large audience of end users in a way that's complementary to what the security teams are looking for. And so I think that even in some cases where there, where the broader industry is going to have a hard time shifting, there will be some companies that find ways to take advantage of, of PLG to disrupt uh, the market. Yeah. Love it. So I want to switch gears to the uh, the expansion SaaS benchmarks results. This is what we partner with uh, OpenView every year. We'll make sure to link it 
and all that good stuff in the in the recap here. I think one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about for Visible, you know, um, on our journey as as a PLG type company, is this idea that product teams are revenue generating resources, right? By definition of that, if the product is at the core, then these are really your salespeople in a way. Um, they're not selling the product, right? They're building it, which people are buying. Uh, and we need to hold them to targets just like salespeople. Uh, I think we could have a whole episode talking about metrics and how you think about that. I want to talk about the psychology of that, though. Like, if you think about the kind of engineer or product person, the the typical kind of characteristics of that person, I think they're less risk adverse, uh, maybe don't want their compensation to be variable uh, or part of that to be variable, right? Uh, like, so... How are you seeing that unfold, like in terms of what's working um, from maybe a psychology perspective of uh, how do we compensate product people so that, you know, it's it's easy for sales, right? Here's your quota. You hit it. You get a bunch of money. You hit it higher. You get a ton of money. Uh, but what about like for your product team? Yeah, well, and I think just like zooming out bigger picture, uh, the with this environment with COVID, one of the first things that a lot of companies did was they cut back on their sales and marketing spend. Mm-hmm. And so we saw sales and marketing budgets pretty significantly trimmed on average, but product and engineering stayed exactly as it was before in terms of its share as a percentage of of, uh, of revenue. And so now I think product engineering is this massive um, allocation of spending in a traditional uh, software company, but it's a black box where money goes in and it's unclear what the outcomes are. And and so I think that. That happened. And the other thing that's happened is you have a number of companies like a Calendly that are investing in product as a way to drive growth, whether that's, hey, they're improving conversion from free to paid, or they're do- working on usability to make it easier for customers to invite more users to their account, uh, you-, you name it. And so these investments might not show up in a CAC payback where your CAC payback might look better because of those investments, but those are still real investments that you have to make and trade off compared to other parts of your organization. So from a CEO's perspective, you should be very mindful about what is the impact of your product and engineering spend and be thinking about ways to provide better visibility into where that money is going. And I think to me that ultimately does get translated down to the product teams and and compensation and things like that. to me, those are tactics, and we can debate them. And I know there's there's a lot of controversy around them. I think that my, my number one takeaway is like before even worrying about that, just make sure that you see this as a priority as a founder, and this is something that's on your mind. And measuring things as a company like burn productivity or return on incremental invested capital are great financial metrics to be tracking, rather than just the classic like CAC payback which only considers sales and marketing investments as growth investments. But then, yeah. you know, to answer your specific question, I think like the first thing I would say is most companies still don't give specific KPIs to their product teams. And even outside of just compensation, having a KPIs that the management team are uh, monitoring a- across the product engineering org like product influence revenue, product influence word of mouth um, or referral acquisition, revenue attribution to new features that you've released, uh, product quality indicators, like the team velocity. 
metrics, I, I think that overall metrics um, that are product engineering related should be viewed at the executive level. And then they should get translated down to the team level of what each team's goal is uh, to go and improve. And then sprints can start being tied to these KPIs where you're looking at the return on, uh, on the investment across these different metrics that Related down to what the team is actually building and working on. Like, just, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, sounds basic. Actually, it's a lot harder in practice. And then from there, I'd say, like, taking it as far as you can, you'd even be looking at performance based pay. And I think that's where there's the most debate and challenges in the, the product management world. And, and I know it's not, not as black and white, and there's, there's a lot of moving pieces. But my, I guess my, a couple of comments I'd make on it would be one is, if you're paying sales reps in your organization 300,000, 400,000 for a great year, uh, you probably are also having product team members that are driving as much of, of an impact or higher, especially if you're a PLG organization. And how do you incentivize them to keep them and encourage them to keep kind of raising the bar? And I think the comp is probably more equity driven versus like a, a commission model. Yeah. Uh, but there should still be that alignment, right, around setting clear goals for what they're trying to achieve, measuring those goals on an ongoing basis, and then rewarding them for, for that performance. Yeah, we've we've done, I think, a pretty good job of this. Do you want to try to do a real-time uh, uh, problem at Visible and case study with a product-led growth thing we're going right now? Let's do it. Okay, so... Uh, a lot of our customers are founders, early stage founders, right? And you know, two months ago, our price point was uh, $99 a month, was kind of like the lowest you could get in at Visible, uh, which could be considered uh, a considerable amount of money for a company that's just getting started. So we kept hearing from the market, hey, this is kind of outside my zone. So we, we introduced what we call the light plan for $29 a month. Uh, and so part of that was how can we uh, better increase our uh, free trial conversion. And uh, from, from people that have started a trial to became a customer, uh, the short of the story is we increased it 50%. Um, so by introducing the light plan, uh, our free trial conversion increased 50%. Uh, but net new kind of revenue stayed flat. Uh, because we introduced, a, which makes sense, right? We introduced a lower tier pricing plan uh, and it stayed flat. Now, my thesis is, uh, and this is all relatively new, this is within the last 60 days. So uh, my thesis is 12 months from now, we'll kind of understand if that was a good decision because ideally some of those people on the light plan kind of naturally expand into our higher uh, tier offerings as they grow their business and their company. And we'll actually create a compounding effect because right now um, it is uh, uh, flat, but 12 months from now should be higher. Is that right? You think I'm thinking about that the right way? So I, I think generally, uh, yeah, reducing friction and being able to uh, align pricing with your customers' budgets, like willingness to pay, finding ways to get them in the door early and then monetize them, on, monetize as they're successful. like. Is, uh, is a good sort of long-term strategy for a lot of companies. But I would probably start to look at, is there really going to be that expansion? And what's the best way to drive that movement mm -hmm. up tiers? Because when you introduce a cheap plan, I mean, everyone is incentivized to say, hey, 
why don't I just try this? Um, it's, you know, and th- there's no reason to start with a more expensive plan, even though the more expensive plan might be better for them for them right now. And so there could be instances when someone starts, and, and you see this all the time with like freemium models where folks sit on the free version for forever and they really should upgrade, but they're kind of okay with free. It gives them kind of enough of what they need. And there's a discoverability problem where they don't know what they're missing because they haven't necessarily experienced it. And so I'd want to monitor what that kind of natural upgrade behavior looks like. And then ideally, uh, start to think about experiments that can drive more of that upgrade faster. And so things like uh, you'll, you'll see free trials of higher tier products, right? Or if you're doing a free trial, instead of picking, I want a free trial of the light version or the pro version, just defaulting to a free trial of the pro version and then yep. folks can downgrade to light later on. And that way they at least saw kind of what the potential is with the product and were able to discover these advanced features and capabilities. And then they know now, even though they're, they're choosing not to, to use them at the moment, like they know what they're missing. So you'll see like a Calendly, their free trial defaults to the highest tier. Yep, that's what, that's what we're doing. Yep. Give people yeah. that experience. And then I think another thing is having clear usage metrics in the product where the customer kind of has a compelling event where they need to upgrade. So I think like you'll see there's a lot of times with free products, but a Slack, you have uh, the amount of messages that you can archive or, or maintain before your messages start to disappear. And so what they're thinking is when Slack is just kind of a fun communication tool for a team, it's not mission critical. You don't really need that message history. But as soon as everyone in the organization is using it, you have integrations with a lot of other systems, this becomes like mission critical data for the enterprise. That's when you're asked to upgrade. And there's that compelling event, that moment in time when you, you and they know that you're ready and something goes away. And so I think that for, for a lot of companies that want to see that upgrade across tiers, you need to have a compelling event that tells your customers you know, it, it's time for them to move up. Okay, great. So I think we're thinking about it the right way. We'll report back in 10 months and, and let you know how this desk goes. But so far, experiment is, I would say, it's working. Uh, and now we just kind of need to see that that path to like, okay, are we are those light people actually going to upgrade? And then we kind of will create almost net negative uh, uh, churn, which, which will be great. Uh, kind of two more questions before we wrap up and, and, and then we can kind of get on our way. And I appreciate your time. Uh, you mentioned, we talked about spend. So you mentioned a lot of companies cut back on on spend during COVID uh, and cut sales and marketing budgets. Is now a good time to start investing, you think, again, in go-to-market? Or, or what's, the, what's the word on the street? Where, how are you guys talking to portfolio companies about maybe investing in sales and marketing going, you know, going into 2021? Yeah, I think many folks were very cautious when COVID hit about making sure companies had shored up their cash balance. They had reforecasted. They like cut back on discretionary initiatives. Like there was a lot of like let's sort of uh, make sure that we are as well prepared as possible to navigate what could be a really challenging situation. And I think the surprising thing for a lot of companies is that the impact of COVID on their business was not as much as they expected. And while you know, that's certainly more true for some businesses than others. Like if you're in the e-commerce space or have a collaboration tool, 
uh, then you're much better positioned versus if you sell vertical software to like retail and restaurants. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, companies I think uh, saw much less of an impact than was in, immediately feared. And so companies are now in a better position where their CAC paybacks are fairly good. They have a fairly lean sales and marketing team. Growth is still there, and their their cash balance, their cash position is strong. And I think the other thing is that uh, public and private markets are extremely robust, and so valuations are high. Especially public market valuations are maybe as high as they've ever been for software companies, and the market is rewarding growth even more now than it has in the past. So I'd say from all of those signals, it's certainly a good time to be taking advantage of that and really making sure that you're investing back towards growth. Although I you know, selfishly would say, you should still keep some of this mentality of it's not growth at all costs, but you know, it's, it's efficient, it's smart growth. Uh, and and I, I, I think that we don't necessarily need to go back to the exact old way of doing it. I think there's a, there's a balance. Um, but I, I, one other thing I just share is that to me, we learned in this period that software is seen as mission critical at a lot of companies. Uh, I think once folks adopt software, it's really hard to replace. And they're mm-hmm. more reliant in this remote environment, more reliant on a lot of their technology than they've ever been as a company. And so I think that just speaks well to the stickiness of software. Even if we have you know, a continued recession, another recession, um, the demand will remain there for, um, for most software products. It's interesting you say that, right, uh, around spend, because it sounds like, hey, companies cut back on sales and marketing. Uh, they continue to grow. So like, why? <laughs> like, why would I, you know, spend? It was, uh, I think it was like Airbnb even like cut out all AdWords, right? Uh, and it's just like, holy cow, we have a profitable company now because people are, don't even need to find us on AdWords. Everyone knows about Airbnb. Um, but I, I agree, there's, there's balance there. And so if you think about the benefits of product-led growth, it's efficient, it's a path to profitability. Uh, you know, why should I raise maybe venture capital then? Why should I come to OpenView uh, for my Series A and, and raise venture capital if I have this super efficient business already? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Well, and, and there's that reason and there's the reason of there's just so many funding options available right now. Mm-hmm. In the uh, SPACs and direct listings get all the attention, but even just things like uh, venture debt, recurring revenue syndicate. There's a lot of funding options outside of traditional venture. And I think a, a lot of founders, even from our research and, and from some of your data, shows that many founders are not very pleased with their VCs. Mm-hmm. And so equity is really expensive um, to give up, especially relative to other funding options. And if you're going to you know, go that path, you want to be satisfied with the VC that you choose. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking to see that VCs have about the same NPS score that airlines have, um, as, as you <laughs> yeah. have shown. But I think that to me, there's, uh, there's real value in a few ways. So one is that uh, depending on the VC, a firm could actually be a partner that helps you accelerate your growth and achieve a valuation that you would not otherwise be able to reach on your own without that. Those extra resources, that set of knowledge, that expertise, that network, uh, and you know, my my parents think that I work at at Shark Tank or that like Shark Tank is is my life. <laughs> I think there's something there where you know the sharks uh, pitch to uh, to entrepreneurs like 
that you they shouldn't just look at it as uh, you know their current valuation, but think about what future valuation they could achieve with the right partner, mm-hmm. which is different from the future valuation they could achieve without that partner. And so uh, that's that's a mindset that I think founders should be should be aware of. I think from a to your point about you know if you're bootstrapped, if you're relatively profitable, do you really need funding? Uh, on that question, I'd say. Think about what investments are going to allow you to scale and build the kind of business that you want to build. You could say, hey, we're kind of happy with steady growth, bootstrapped, product-led, self-service, like this is working well. Or you could say, hey, we actually see this as a great opportunity to now add sales reps to start calling into our existing self-service customers to expand them. Or now that we have this really healthy user base, we can invest in product to go after new areas to make the product even stickier and add value. And so there could be, still be a number of investments that, that are venture bets that need additional funding to be able to achieve them. So it, it goes back to just planning out the kind of business that you wanna build and what, you're, what you need in order to achieve that, which might include funding and might include you know, a partner who has that expertise. There it is. Uh, Kyle, you're clearly an, an expert in, in all things product-led growth. Can't uh, thank you enough for coming on and, and sharing some great tidbits with us. Uh, we're looking forward to another great year with, with OpenView, but uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. See ya.